and we're talking about like generous scholarships, like, you know, pass your first year and your second year is free type stuff, you know, so <laughs> that's that can, the type yeah. of scholarship we need in the U.S. We need lower you prices know? and a buy one, get one discount. Who can resist a buy one, get one? The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 380. In 2014, Germany officially abolished college tuition fees for everyone, including international students. You'll be learning more about that today. Okay, okay, I'll admit it. There are a few times where I think it would be very hard for people to travel with just a carry-on. And these times are when people are going to live abroad for an extended amount of time. Whether you're a student, you're going to go over for six months or a year to study abroad, or you're going to move abroad to go to a school um, in another country for for good, maybe for all four years, or you're someone who takes a job in another country and you're going to be there for a couple years, or if you're like me, you teach English in Japan and you go there for two years it is going to be very hard to travel with just a carry-on. But for the 99% of other people out there who are not going to live abroad, they're just going traveling, I truly believe that you can travel with just a carry-on. I've done it around the world. So has Heather. So if she can do it, you can do it. And the best travel carry-on backpack, the one that we recommend out there, is Tortuga Backpacks. And thankfully for you, we've got a sweet discount code to Tortuga Backpacks. Now, it is different than it used to be. If you want to get your 10% off anything that you order over at Tortuga Backpacks, you have to go to tortugabackpacks.com slash epop. That's tortugabackpacks.com slash epop. Put that special link in your browser. And then when you go to check out, you'll get an automatic 10% discount code applied. Also, since we recorded, Beyond the States has some new big news. On July 15th, 2019, Beyond the States launched a membership program for master's degrees. So there are over 5,000 English-taught master's programs in Europe at over 300 schools. And these are at substantial savings over getting a master's degree in the U.S. So if you're looking for a master's degree, now in addition to stuff they talk about as with bachelor's degrees, if you're looking for a master's degree as well, visit beyondthestates.com to learn more. And now let's roll into the show. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is the author of College Beyond the States, European Schools That Will Change Your Life Without Breaking the Bank, someone who is one of the world's foremost experts on over 1,700 schools in Europe that a student can get a bachelor's degree from in English, and who, for her air quotes here, job, gets to visit Europe regularly to visit those schools, Jen Vimont from BeyondTheStates.com. Jen, thanks for joining me, and a huge welcome. Thanks, Travis. I'm excited to talk to you today. 
I mentioned to you right before we got on here that I am so thrilled to talk to you about this subject because you know when people are passionate about something but they have like a limited knowledge, you know, usually you're like, it's not a, it's not a good recipe for success. That's how I feel about this is I'm very passionate about this idea of, of people exploring options other than going to a U.S. university, but my knowledge is way like lower than yours. I don't know much except I know that it's a good option. So super excited to talk to you about that because you know a lot more than I do. And I think it's going to open a lot of people's eyes. So as we get going, I want you just to start with telling people what Beyond the States does. Like what is this website that you're running and why are you running it? Totally. Well, like you, a few years ago, I thought it was, you know, studying abroad was a great thing and that it was probably just limited to semester abroad. Um, I have teenagers myself and I'm a big planner. So I had already started uh, planning slash worrying about their college career and like how we would pay for it and just like the homogeneous environment. And, you know, here in the U.S., if you do semester abroad, it's pretty expensive. You know, it's cost prohibitive for a lot of people. I was also worried about the admissions process, just all sorts of worries. I ran across an article on Facebook, like we often do, about a kid who was studying in Germany for free without knowing German, like for his whole degree. So I thought, okay, cool, I'll sit on my back porch and do a little research, see if we should keep this on our radar. And I was completely overwhelmed. There, you know, we're talking about so many different countries, and I didn't understand the admissions procedures. I didn't understand the differences. I didn't understand if the degrees would be good here. All these questions, but I could tell by the price that it was something that I wanted to keep on my radar. Um, looked into it a little bit more for our family, learned enough about the benefits that I realized other people would want to know this too. So I spent a year, a really awesome year, traveling to Europe, which I still do, um, visiting the schools. It's actually about 350 schools that offer 1,700 English-taught programs. So that means you don't need to know English. The courses are in English, the lectures, the, the readings, the tests, everything is in English. And they do this to draw students from around the world. They're not trying to just get American students or Canadian students or Australian students. You know, English is a common language in many countries. So these little tiny countries, by having these English taught programs, they can pull in more students than just those who speak Latvian, for instance, you know, they'd be kind of restricted if all of their programs are in Latvian. How many people speak Latvian? So anyways, I was visiting schools, talking to international students, talking to administrators so that I could provide a comprehensive and objective source of information. Most of the information out there, it's, um, it's basically they have arrangements with the schools to get money. I don't take any money from the schools so that if I go to a school and see some red flags, I can tell you about it. Um, so we created a database of all of these English taught programs, as long as they're accredited and taught in English. Um, and we have a membership where people, um, you know, they can get all the information they need. There are courses, there are webinars. We have uh, monthly calls with me. Uh, we have a Facebook member group, which is really fun right now because all these people are getting acceptance letters um, and posting about it and posting about housing. Um, so that's what I do. That's beyond the States. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned the cost, right? Like that was the first thing that triggered you because I think when you read the headlines of these business insider things on Facebook or whatever, you're like, it, it, it's sensational, right? And then you dive in and you're like, whoa, wait a second. It might sound sensational, but this this is actually someone is really 
doing this. And so they draw you in and then you say, all right, but then usually you're left with where do I get more information, right? It's like thousand word article. And then you're like, I got a thousand questions that aren't answered here. But the cost was the thing for you. Like, all right, this person is going here for free to school in Germany. This is something that is worth my time looking into because it's because it's such a different and stark difference from what we're paying in the US. So let's talk about cost right off the bat and why people might be interested. What is the cost difference between going to one of these schools like you're talking about, like an, an English-speaking school abroad in Europe versus a regular US institution? Well, I'll give you a concrete example, and then I'll give you averages. Sure. My son sure. will be going to, um, to a university in The Hague, a Leiden University. It's a top 100 school. I don't care about rankings, but I mentioned that so you don't think that these things are are because it's sort of subpar, you know? So it's a top 100 school, and we're going to pay about uh, $12,000 a year, and it only takes three years to complete. Now, this is one of the more expensive schools. So we're going to, we com- I did this cost comparison, even calculating in overseas travel, room and board, costs like visa. And if we were to send him to an out-of-state or private university, we would be saving over $200,000 total, even with all those things, which is just crazy to me. But, and this is, again, at one of the more expensive schools, the average cost for all these 1,700 programs, the average is $7,000 a year, and most take only three years to complete. So, yeah, $7,000, you are like, oh, that's like state school, but there's a year less, you know? Um, And there are hundreds of options under $4,000, too. So is that seven thousand? Uh, that's tuition number, and and his and it's tuition for twelve thousand for him at at Linden. You said at Leiden, yes. At Leiden, Leiden. Okay, uh-huh. so you got twelve thousand tuition, which is as you said one of the more expensive ones, seven thousand average, and then a significant amount of ones under four thousand for tuition. And then you know, people, if if you're unfamiliar with the state tuition in the U.S., let's just give them some random numbers. What's like a very good private university or, or a more expensive private university in the U.S. cost for tuition? Well, the one that I compared it to, my son's really interested in languages and international studies, specifically the Middle East. So Middlebury College in Vermont is a great school and they have a program like that. And their tuition and fees is $52,000 a year, $52,000 a year. So that makes the numbers easy. 40000 he's saving per year Plus, he's doing one less year, which is where we're coming up with that that $200,000 number. So I guess the question that maybe is hard for us to answer, but why is it either why is the U.S. so much more expensive or on the flip side, why is it so much more affordable going to some of these universities in Europe? Well, I mean, for one is that if you were to ask a Dutch student if if $12,000 for Leiden was reasonable, they would say no, because they're paying much less, you know? So, so but the other thing is that, um, you know, one thing I hear a lot is what you're paying for in Europe is you're paying for an education. What you're paying for in the U.S., you're also paying for stadiums, and you're paying for, you know, just just this huge overhead and all these non-academic related things. Schools don't own their own housing in Europe. I mean, that right there is is, um, one factor that they don't have. But it's also about just sort of um, a philosophy about access to higher education. And you see this in the admissions process too, is that they want students to have access to higher education and cost is one of that. Now, I will also say though, if you are eligible for a dual citizenship, 
there are a lot of people who are eligible for dual citizenships who just haven't taken advantage of it yet. Your costs are going to be dramatically less than those numbers that I gave. So, because further, you, you would be going as a uh, either a European student or or like someone with the EU passport or a you'd have a passport from that specific country as opposed to being an international student then. Yeah, you don't need it from that specific country. If you have a passport from, you know, Italy, you can still get the EU prices in Estonia. Um, and even still, like, I, I just got back from a trip to the Balkans, uh, Baltic states. I get Baltic and Balkan mixed up when I say it. The Baltic states, and I was in Lithuania and found out that Lithuanian students, they don't even have to have an EU passport if they can prove Lithuanian um, that they're a descendant of a Lithuanian, then they can get um, less tuition as well. So did you start looking into how you could possibly get your son um, a a second passport, a dual passport? Or did you know that wasn't going to happen for you guys at all? I knew there was no chance with my uh, family background. <laughs> you, you just took, you're like 12,000 sold. Okay. Done. We, we know that, that Dutch students probably paying 2K and laughing that we're paying 12K, but aha, we're not paying 52K at that point. Totally. What, what are some of then the other pros that you've seen, you know, cost huge one and, and probably the, my guess would be the overarching reason why people at least start looking into it is cost because they're like, this is, these are big numbers that, that we're saving, but there's a ton of other pros about studying in Europe versus the U S what have you seen as some of those from, from anecdotal evidence from people who've gone through your program and now doing it from, you know, your son's going over. So you guys have done some research on that. What do you see as the main other pros? Like, Hey, you're going to Europe for an education versus the U S. Well, one, this uh, getting up there with sort of the tangible benefits is the admissions process. Um, my son would not be a good player of the admissions game in the U.S. Like, you know, he doesn't like to join clubs. Uh, he he has interests and likes to pursue those on his own, but is not much of a – he works out, but he doesn't play sports. He, you know, there are a lot of interests that just aren't quantifiable for the application. Right, like his resume now, isn't – boom, 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 like someone would see on a sheet of paper and it'd be like, oh, this kid does everything. Totally, totally. Um, so in Europe, what generally happens is it's not competitive in that if you meet the requirements that they set out, then you're in. Now, a lot of times those requirements are simply that you have a high school diploma. Sometimes it's that you need a certain SAT score. For the school he applied to, he had to have a certain number of AP scores. So, but what's great about that is that it's not like if he had more than that, he would be in more. I mean, you're in. If you have, you know, the four AP scores or if you have 10 AP scores, doesn't matter. You know, um, doesn't matter that he didn't play sports because that to them has no, um, it, it doesn't factor into whether he'll be successful academically in their program. So that's sort of a tangible benefit. But honestly, cost and admissions, those tangible ones that kind of draw you in, um, become less of the primary uh, benefit when you start learning more about like global citizenship and employability and educational outcomes. Those sort of things that start out as secondary benefits often move up on people's lists pretty quickly. Yeah. So why is it that it's less competitive than at some of those universities in Europe? Why would it be that you're not competing at so many people. Is it because so many fewer people are going to secondary ed or at least that type of secondary ed in Europe, the, the traditional four-year or three-year model? 
Well, part of it is about, again, access to higher education and a philosophy around access to higher education, that if you show that you can meet these requirements and you should be allowed to study in the program, if you show you have what it takes. Now, um, what the difference is, instead of using your high school career to prove that you have what it takes, you have to prove you have what it takes that first year. And a lot of schools have something called binding study advice. And that means if you don't pass a certain number of courses your first year, you're out because they're more interested in how you can perform your freshman year of college than how you performed your freshman year in high school, if that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. So they're saying essentially like with universities in the States, you're in and unless you really, really mess up, you can muddle your way through and get a diploma. But, you know, it matters what you did before. And the European universities are saying, hey, we'll let more people and we'll give more people a shot. But if you don't pass it, you know, uh, if you don't take this shot or you mess it up, then you're out. Totally. And and the other thing to note is a lot of the reason about selectivity in the U.S., and I'm not going to get on my soapbox about this, I promise, is about the selectivity number is used in the rankings in the U.S., And that's a really gamed system. I mean, the the U.S. rankings are really gamed. Now, global rankings don't factor in selectivity at all. They just look at at research-related criteria, which I don't think relate to the educational experience, but that's a different topic. Um, What I'm saying is they have no reason to kind of game those numbers. There's no incentive or, or anything else. So. If you want to get on your soapbox, you definitely can because the, I want I want you on your soapbox if you're willing to go there because for me I as I mentioned I feel pretty passionate about this as someone who has gone through and it's not that I want to say I hate the US education system and I went through a typical university so I'm not slandering anyone who did because that was my path. I just didn't realize when I was growing up that there was another option. I had one friend who who did, and he had been, his family was travelers, right? So they they he'd gone to you know forty fifty countries when he was a kid. I don't know. It's like they were always going off to Europe or somewhere cool, and I just didn't know that. And he went. I remember he, he were best friends. He applied and got into University of British Columbia in Vancouver. So we're not talking European. We're just talking Vancouver. But in my head, I remember saying to him like, "How could you do that? Like, how could you go so far away? You're going to another country. Like, why would you do that?" And he's just laughing at me. He's like, "Vancouver is beautiful. Have you ever been there?" Of course, I hadn't. So I'm like, "No." He's like. I'm paying 10k a year or something for tuition even as an international student which was three times or two times what a Canadian student was paying but I in my head like I had no idea that something like that existed and it was just out of ignorance I, I didn't know anyone who was doing it and I, I hadn't heard about it and I didn't travel much and then I look back on it even even five years out I looked back on pretty quick once I started traveling, was like wow there are a lot of options here. And so I think that's the issue is that none of us know about this. And, and I don't, I guess I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it's, I, I don't know. I, maybe you know better. Like, why is there an ignorance towards the options of going to other countries and paying substantially less? I think there are a couple of things. One is that Now, you're younger than me, but at least when I was growing up, these options didn't exist. It wasn't that we didn't know about them so much. It's just until 1992, and again, this is one of those things that's kind of boring, so I won't get into it too much. There was a Bologna Declaration that standardized higher education all around Europe. So before then, internationalization wasn't as huge of a thing, and maybe a degree from Hungary wasn't the equivalent as a degree from France. Now it is. So the other thing, though, is I really believe, and again, I'm going to be pulling out a soapbox here. I can't can't help this one. Uh, the myth and you know listen there are a lot of things about 
living in this country that I really love. There are a lot of, so I'm, I'm not saying this to slam America, but there is a myth of American exceptionalism where we just, just, you know, we hear, oh, our higher education system is the best. And instead of looking at what might support that or what might not support that, we just go, okay, it is, you know? Um, so I, I, I believe that, you know, I, I have a lot on Facebook and it always amazes me what people will reply to, you know, like will comment. And I really do see some just close minded views about, um, about what people think about different countries that, that is not backed up by, by, um, any sort of evidence. I think the other thing is about social proof. And there's some, I don't know if you, one of the, the few podcasts I listen to is, is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's and he did this thing a, a while back about threshold and how some people need to, in order to make sort of different choices, they need to see that more people are doing it before they'll consider it for themselves, even if it's the right decision. So there are some people who do need that um, social proof to see that, oh, okay, you know, so-and-so is doing it, so I guess I can too. So that's another reason we're trying to spread the word. We have a lot of members who are doing this now. So, And that's what I love about it is, and, and I'm, you know, I think we're all guilty of social proof in different ways. I might feel like I could be brave enough or have enough courage or be a guinea pig in some ways, whereas in, there's, there's other parts of my life where I wouldn't have been right like so i i think that's the beauty of spreading the message is that there are people out there who this would be perfect for and they're they're a little they're holding back or they or like we said they might not have even heard of it now do you think with the u.s and this is speculation though i mean there has to come a tipping point where these tuitions go up and up and up. I mean, and and like way above the rate of inflation, way above the cost of goods going up. I mean, they're just going up astronomical percentage points every year, every year, every year to the point that now, like you said, 52,000 intuition for a small liberal arts school, which is, you know, more than the average American person is going to make in a year. And so do you see their starting to become some pushback towards that like from your vantage point or do you think that no it's just accepted like you go to school four years you go in debt and that's just the way it is um four years i wish i mean honestly the graduation (laughs) rate is more like six years these days um because like we were talking about you don't really fail out you just add more time on um i don't know you know i would have thought if there was going to be a tipping point it would have been by now there's this website i found called college calc and what you can do, oh, it's so disturbing. You know, it really sucked in. You can put in, um, it shows you what, like I like to look at what college cost when I, what a certain college cost when I went to college versus now versus what it's going to be just five years from now. And when you look at those numbers, I mean, it is mind blowing. Um, so I can't imagine. But what I think is great is that whether it does, you know, whatever happens in the U.S. with higher education that there's a way to opt out, you know, I, and that's what I didn't know until five years ago. Even if you decide, you end up deciding to go to school in the U.S., then at least it feels more like a choice as opposed to here's something I'm stuck with. I think that's really important. I was going to ask you, what if you're, uh, you have a son who, who we know is not going to school in the U.S. and then you have another child as well, right? I, yeah, I have a 14-year-old daughter. So what if your daughter says to you, you know, she she's 16 and looking at schools or, or maybe she's looking now because her mom knows all about colleges and her brother's going. But, you know, what if she says to you, all right, I, I've looked at this stuff. I, you know, I really, really, really want to go to Duke. And I know you guys are down in Chapel Hill. So like, 
I, I want to go to Duke. My friends are going to Duke. I'm, I got into Duke, whatever. I, I want to do it. And you're looking like Duke's probably 45K, right? Um, so what if you're your kid and I'm in the same boat just like 15 years behind here or 13 years behind what if they come to the decision themselves that they would like to do it would you a would you allow it and b how would you feel I guess because I I don't want my kid to decide to do it but maybe they will you know I I, well a couple things there first of all if, if that's what she decided I would want her to let me know exactly why, you know, and it can't be a reason like, well, cause I want to be in a sorority cause I'm not going to pay $45,000 for the social aspects. You know, I'll throw you really big parties every summer or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a lot um, of money to spend on parties. Yeah. Right, right. So I would need to know some really compelling reasons why, as well as the financial plan I'd want her to have if she were making that choice. But, um, I think sort of, so Mike is one thing we've always grown. I've, has been a priority of ours since the get go is that travel, you know, we will drive cars that have tons of miles on them, you know, make choices in other areas so that we can expose them to the world. And that's been just a value of ours and a priority of ours. And because we started it so young, it's become a part of who they are. And so when they meet somebody who's not interested and excited about learning more and exploring the world, they're always kind of baffled by that. And I feel like this is what we are, we've been doing about college, too. Not only do they have this, this curiosity about the world, but we've also, you know, we talk a lot about the different colleges and things like that. So because it's sort of related to our values as a family and my kids' own values and interests, I can't imagine, knock on wood, <laughs> that, uh, knock on something here, that, that she would um, make a different choice. Yeah, I I actually always said even before we had Wit, our one year old, I actually said, you know, if I I feel like it, if I'm doing a good job, that my kids when they turn eighteen will make their own choice, and it will not be to go to college in the U.S. Now there are probably a few examples, and we'll probably touch on them in a little bit. Uh, of for some people, it is going to make sense, and you know, there's a lot of other things I want my kids to to do well and decide on, but to me, it's just such a clear cut answer. When you look at it, that I it is it would be hard for me, and, and I'm saying this like if they said they wanted to go, you you said oh we'd come up with a plan and we'd talk about it, and no one know why. I feel like I would get pretty angry because I'd be like I did something wrong because how could you want something like that that costs so much more? And and I'm not gonna say it's a better or worse experience; it's a different experience. But it's just you're looking at it and you say you could have something similar for so much less. So. On that note, then, wh- who does it make sense for? Like, or is there anyone it makes sense for to go to a U.S. university versus a European university? Yeah, I think there are some. Um, I think that there are. Um, wow, I'm really going to struggle. Who it doesn't make sense for? There are people who are legitimately not interested in the world outside of their hometown or their home state. And, you know, and no judgment there, you know, they're raised with different values or, you know, and, and want to stick close to home because they're not interested in the other. If you're not interested in other cultures, if you're not interested in other countries, you know, you're going to be living with kids from all over the world, you know, and students in, in Europe, they, um, you know, there aren't meal plans traditionally. So you're kind of cooking for yourself, which become these multicultural events. So if you're not interested in, you know, food from around the world, not just the country you're going to around the world, but, you know, and, and customs and all sorts of things like that, then you're going to have a really difficult time. 
Are there any are there any majors specifically that you would say? And again, this is American ex- exceptionalism, right? But is there are there any majors that you would say, hey, if you're getting into this, it it does probably make sense to stay U.S. based and pay more because of a it's a it's a better education or b you're going to have to come back because for for example, I went to school in Pennsylvania. I lived here in Pennsylvania. The only reason I decided to do that was I knew I wanted to be a teacher, right? And so, all right, well, I'm going to go through. I have to get my teaching certificate. I can go to these other states to get my degree, but I'm going to have to come back here and take a bunch of other classes and pass this test. So are there professions like that that you see like, eh, it, it, it just isn't going to line up as well if you go abroad than if you stayed here? Yeah, um, medicine. You know, there are these integrated medicine programs that combine a bachelor's and master's degree in one. So in six years, you get, you know, your your bachelor's and your MD. And if you're planning on coming back to the States, there are a lot of issues with getting residencies. So there are just obstacles there. Now, that said, you know, the cost of medical school in Europe versus here is tremendous. Like you might be willing to take that chance but but definitely those those medical fields uh, create more obstacles. Other than that, there aren't as many. The main difference academically, you, you brought up something, a really good point. You know, here in the U.S., your first two years of college are generally um, gen ed requirements. So in Europe, when you apply to a school, you're applying to a specific program at that school. So you're basically declaring your major ahead of time. And all of your classes, other than electives, are going to relate to that major. It's, a, it's like a setup. Year one, you take this. It's not like the pick and choose of here. It's that here's what you're going to take year one. Here's what you're going to take year two. There might be some electives. And here's year three. So I was a psychology student uh, when I got my undergrad. And I had to, of course, take classes like, you know, intro to philosophy. In Europe, if I were a psychology student, I wouldn't have to take philosophy but I could as an elective if that were something I was interested in. So that's sort of the difference there. And so I see that as a good and bad thing, right? A, a, a good part is that like, if you know what you want to do, great. Then you're not essentially wasting time, money, uh, classes, credits on, oh, everyone has to, t- yeah, everyone has to take intro to sociology and intro to health and like a, a, an English class and blah, 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 blah. But then I also could see how it, it could be difficult too, because you're, you're pigeonholing right away. And I think one of the reasons that people maybe shouldn't go to college is because they go and have no idea what they want to do. And four years later, they come out with all this debt. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, I, I want to do something different. So what about that type of student? Someone's like, all right, I don't know what I want to do. In the US, I might be given more of a chance to figure out and, and still might not figure out. But if I go to Europe, then I'm even I'm more on this track. And if I don't like it, then what are my options? Well, there are a couple of choices for those kids. One is that there are liberal arts programs. I mean, they're not as plentiful, but but the Netherlands, for instance, has a liberal arts program with every one of their research universities. And with that, you don't declare your major until the second year. And the first year is more sort of an exploration of those. So there are options for those. The other thing is that a lot of the programs, it's not like you're taking um, just economics. You know, there are a lot of integrated programs that uh, PPE programs are really big, which are philosophy, political science and economics all in one. You know, so so and a lot of them will start broad. And even though you've already declared your your program, like your major, then you specialize later. You know, a, a program 
an example of this is a program called like life science. You know, that's really broad. Right. And that's start and then you you specialize it down. So you're not completely pigeonholed and there are options for kids who have broad interests or just have no idea. I, the program my son's doing, International Studies, that comp- combines language, um, international relations, cultural studies, uh, political science. I mean, that's just a few of the topics that it that it involves. How does it work then for people who want to transfer credit back? So let, let's start with someone who who goes for a year and it's just not for them, and you know, and they like wash out or, or they or they decide not to come back to the European University, and so they say, "All right, well, will that generally transfer over? Let's say you did thirty credits. Could you get thirty credits if you came home and went to Duke after going to some European university?" You know, it's really case by case depending on the school you're applying to. What I can say is that they're all accredited. These are all accredited schools, so these are all accredited courses, if you will. Um, so theoretically, yes. Um, The credit system works differently there than it does here. Here, you know, credit hours are allocated based on how many hours you spend in the classroom. And their credit hours are allocated based on how much time you're going to spend on that class in and outside of the classroom. So um, there's something called ECTS. So in a year, you're going to have 60 ECTS. Whereas here, in a year, you're going to have 30 credit hours if you're full time or some somewhere around there. So so theoretically, yes. But you know, again, US schools are run by like a big business. And so Right. They're like, we don't want you to have this many credits because if you need more, then you're gonna pay pay for more. Okay. So it so it's 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 not significantly harder than if you're transferring between schools in the U.S. Like, yes, you might have to jump through a few hoops and you might have to fi- get stuff written about how much this course is worth there, but you're not going to, you're not like out those credits. You should be able to transfer m- most as long as you're sticking within the same type of program. Right, right. Then what about someone who's coming from a- and getting a bachelor's? And I don't even know, is it, is it called a bachelor's in Europe? Would it the same yeah, thing? Okay, so let's say you're going and getting a bachelor's in Europe. And then you come back and now you want to go and and do your master's or or continuing education, maybe a PhD or something in the U.S. Does that generally, is that accepted as well? Like, all right, they have a bachelor's from XYZ College. They're here. They're in our master's program, same as anyone else. Absolutely. Again, these are all accredited universities. So the things, you know, sometimes people will say, well, listen, it's just a three-year bachelor's degree. Is that going to affect master's degree programs here? So I actually went through a ton of like really prestigious um graduate schools in the U.S. and pulled their verbiage for something um, about, and they all, you know, we're talking about University of Chicago, we're talking about Wharton School of Business, we're talking about Stanford, you know, really prestigious schools that say on their websites, three-year diplomas are fine because of the Bologna Declaration, we don't care if you got your diploma in three years or four years or whatever else, is that you have a bachelor's degree. Yeah, and I would assume, actually, in a in a interesting way, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the those types of universities, ones you mentioned, like UPenn and Stanford and and all of them, um, it might even be easier because they have so many international students. Like, would it be easier to do that than let's say you went to again? I don't. We're using Middlebury. I don't know if Middlebury has a master's program, but you're going to a small school where they're like, oh, we don't. You know, they might have one or two or five international students going for a master's where like UPenn, it's you're in with a bunch of other people coming from all over the world who are have all different types of uh, same degree, but all different types of years that they spent. 
Yeah, I think more than anything else, it's about it's something that has you set out, it, you know, that that helps you stand out. You know, here's here's something really different about me. While everybody else, you know, the majority of your other applicants graduate from U.S. schools, I didn't. And here's why. And here's what it did for me. You can really make it um, stand out for you. And there have been studies done. And this is more about um employment than grad school, but that show that studying abroad for greater amounts of time. So we're not talking about, you know, just the couple months study abroad. Um, it has significant impact on not only uh, job offers, but career advancement. And this is primarily due to the soft skills that students develop, um, that employers are really looking for, and they're finding lacking in U.S. students. You know, if you if you live in another country, I mean, you know this, you try, you, you learn how to navigate unfamiliar circumstances. You know, you you um, you learn to work with people with different backgrounds and perspectives. You know, these are skills that that you're gaining on on a day to day basis. Yeah, that was actually going to be my question. We might as well like take it all the way, right? We do like, all right, you leave and don't have your bachelor's. Now you have your bachelor's, come back for master's. All right, now you're coming back to get a job. And and my guess would be that employment would be if at least as easy, if not easier, as you mentioned, because it is that story, especially if you're going into a competitive field. I mean, I remember when I came back after interning in Switzerland and I was looking to get a teaching job again, and they had like 100 applicants for this one job. I went in, did my interview. All they asked me was about why I was driving baseballs around Switzerland for my internship. Nothing about education, nothing about my teaching philosophy, any of that. And like I left and they're like, oh, we've got, you know, 50 other interviews. Cool. I left five minutes later, got a phone call. And they're like, hey, we're going to cancel the other interviews if you want a job. And I was just like, all I did was tell you stories. Like I didn't even like this was the easiest interview of all time. But it was because they were just like, who is this guy? Like, why was he doing that versus you know, a stock standard answer to that kind of stuff. So I, I mean, I have firsthand knowledge on just being a little different and standing out in that way, really, really helping um, in the job field. And I'm sure you see that with a lot of the people who come through your guys' program. Totally. And, and you brought up another good point about internships. You know, in Europe, many of the schools, many of the programs have a required internship as part of your graduation requirements. And we're not talking about, okay, it's summer, go find yourself something. We're talking about, you know, they partner with, with multinational companies. So, cause some people say, oh, well you do your internship in Europe. How's that going to help you here? If you're doing your internship with a multinational company, that is going to help you even if you decide to come back. Um, and that also, I don't want to forget to tell you this. I'm going to segue into this if you don't mind. It reminds me of the Erasmus Plus program, which even if your program doesn't have a required internship, the Erasmus Plus program is something that was created by the EU in order to promote um, curiosity about different countries within Europe. And even international students can engage in this. So you can either do an internship or you can do a semester abroad at another school, which is often part of these programs too and a, and a requirement. So if you do, they, they help you get um, internships and it's not like shopping coffee, it's related to your program. And there's a stipend involved as well to help you with your living expenses, even if it's a paid internship. And then there's a the study abroad part. So let's say, you know, my son, Sam, he's, doing, he's paying $12,000 a year and let's say he wants to go to some really expensive school for a semester abroad that's, that's you know, $24,000 a year. We're going to keep paying $12,000 a year. 
um, for that semester. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. We actually, um, I did a brief series of podcasts last year and did an interview with the um, president of the Erasmus Student Network who talked a lot about these benefits. So it's a great place to check out if people are interested in that. Uh, and we will link all that up in the show notes, guys. Is that study abroad option through that through the Erasmus Plus program, is that able to be outside of Europe as well? Or is that only in Europe? Like, could you be like, oh, I'm going to go back to the US for a semester and and try it like and actually basically be back during your way into a uh, into a cheaper semester at a US university? It used to be only Europe, but now it's because they added the plus, you know, they're, they're adding these countries outside of Europe as well. So I do, I don't know what schools they are, but I do know that there are some in the U S I know there are many in Asia. Um, one of our members, she's been studying in Prague where her tuition is something like $6,000. And, um, and she's going to be studying in Malaysia for a semester next, uh, just in a couple of months. So, you know, there are a lot of, of options outside of Europe as well. And that actually brings me to a question then. If you don't want to do, like, if you're not just going to do a study abroad outside of Europe, and we're just going to talk about going abroad to other to other countries, and, and your forte is obviously Europe here, but are there other options? I mean, I know there are options, but how good are the options, I should ask, of saying, all right, maybe someone's go to South America or Asia or... um you know, or they want to go somewhere else, they want to go to Australia. Are there similar type options for them as the stuff that we've been talking about within Europe? Okay. Um, yeah. You know, the reason we, and because I'm kind of type A, I often think about, oh, should I, should I do other countries too? Because again, one of the beauties of my job is I go visit schools, you know, twice a year and, and I'd love to get back to Asia. Um, but here's what I'm finding is that the reason we're sticking with continental Europe is that across the board in continental Europe, excluding Switzerland, which has a high average, we have these benefits of tuition, of admissions, of countries that are working towards internationalization. You know, it's it's across. And there's also one reason we don't do um, the UK is that price and admissions and also with Brexit, we don't know what's going on there. So that's one reason we haven't listed the UK. Also, it's Anglophone. I have not yet found another country or region, I should say, that across the board offers all these benefits. And so that's where it gets a little iffy because um, so anyway, I've, I've thought about Japan, for instance, um, but the cost isn't quite as low as Europe. So, yes, there are options um, outside of Europe as well is my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the most popular countries that you, well, a most popular for offering these programs? So if there's 300 and some programs, which are the ones that have the, the most availability? And then what are you seeing as the most popular for people wanting to go to? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, the Netherlands has something like 300, that's a tiny country, and that's about three times more than the highest number of, an, of any other countries. Um, they also have a broad range of programs offered. And so that's, that's a popular choice just because there's really something for everyone. They have two types of universities, one which have the AP requirements and one that doesn't. So, you know, people can basically meet the admissions requirements there. So that's a popular one. But what I find is that so many times people come to me, I do this thing that I love called a best fit list. And it's like a student fills out a questionnaire about, you know, their personality, their interests, their qualifications, blah, blah, blah. 
And then I give them a short list of, of good options. And so many times they come to me and they're like, I want to go to France. Now, I mean, France is great and everything, but they mostly have business programs. So if you don't want to study business, it's not a good place to you for you. And people say it because they know it, you know? So I often encourage students to look past France, to look past Spain. And we have students who are now super happy in Estonia, for instance. Nobody's ever come to me and said, hey, I'd like to study in Estonia, you know? But we have, uh, you know, a handful of members there this year. Um, and we also have a number of members um, in Prague. And and again, we have a, a number in the Netherlands and then some scattered, you know, throughout other places in Europe. What what are some of those underrated countries? You mentioned Estonia. You, um, you mentioned Prague and the Czech Republic. Are there any other underrated countries where you're like, oh man, there's so many opportunities here, but people don't know it, so they don't they don't ask for it. But when people go, they come home and say, like, yeah, this was this was a good choice for me. Definitely Prague. Um, I have to tell you, I just got back from Riga, where I would move tomorrow. I mean, I I loved Riga. Um, they're not quite as internationalized as some other countries, but I feel like they're on the cusp and there are a couple of really good countries. I noted uh, a couple of good schools there that I noted in um, my most recent blog. But I do think that that whole region, it has all the benefits, along with Estonia, has all the benefits of Scandinavia without the Scandinavian price tag, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, all right. So we got the Baltics. Yeah. And, and you mentioned like Estonian and uh, Latvia and all. So you have the Baltics is kind of that a hidden gem up there. And like you mentioned, pro like so much cheaper than the countries around it, especially if you're looking if you're looking west towards Scandinavia, which is I, I mean, do you even have people going to Scandinavia or is that? Yeah, I mean, because tuition is still reasonable. So, right. I mean, right. tuition in, for instance, in Norway is free for international students. Now, the cost of living is crazy. Like, go try buy some Band-Aids in Norway and see how far, you know, it's, it's not just like rent. It's it's day to day living. Um, but we, so we don't have a lot of students in Norway actually, but, but Copenhagen, there are a number of, uh, schools in Copenhagen and also throughout Finland, Finland used to be free for international students until just like two years ago. Um, now international students have to pay, but all schools have to offer, uh, scholarships. And we're talking about like generous scholarships, like, you know, pass your first year and your second year is free type stuff. You know, so that <laughs> that's can, the type yeah. of scholarship we need in the U.S. We need lower you prices know? and a buy one, get one discount. Right. Who can resist a buy one, get one? Um, but they're very generous scholarships. And that offsets the the living prices um, of those regions. So what are some of the other countries that have free tuition for international students then? OK, so Norway um, Germany at most of the public universities. However, Germany just changed their admissions requirements for American students, which makes it a lot harder for American students to get in without already having college credits. Um, which again speaks to the myth of American exceptionalism. That's because our high school diploma is not the equivalent of theirs. Um, let's see. So those are the free ones. Yeah. Italy, their public universities, Universities in Italy determine your tuition based on family income. So it's not free, but it's like a sliding scale. Here's the thing, though. Italy's so like kind of like laid back about when they're going to give you information. It would drive somebody like me crazy. 
crazy. So you don't find out what your tuition is going to be until you're already at the school. In our database, I listed as the highest that it would be, just so you can prepare for that, just in sure, case. Sure, you might you might get a little uh, surprise in a good way, but you're not going to get a surprise in a bad way. It's like going to the doctors here in the U.S. You're like, oh, how much is it going to cost? We'll tell you after we're done. I'm like, I, then I don't really have a leg to stand on here, or I can't make a decision. Totally. Okay, so and then you talked about the competition a little bit and it being harder to get in when it comes to Germany. So when you are applying as an international student. Are you applying to the same standards? Like, let's say I'm applying to uh, school in Germany. Am I applying with the same standards that a German student would need? Or are the international students held to a higher standard, lower standard? And also then, you said like people get in if they just meet these criteria. But is there like a cap? Like, could they say, okay, well, we said you would get in if you meet these criteria, but we have 100 slots and there's been 200 people apply that all had this criteria. So, you know, you're not going to get in this year. Sure. So enrollment caps are set before the beginning of the year. There are programs. Let's let's talk about the Netherlands again, because this is where they use this verbiage. I mean, it's, it's again, kind of in a lot of places, but they use this specific ver- verbiage. So they have selective enrollment for programs that have an enrollment cap. So it wouldn't be that University of Groningen, for instance, has a has an enrollment cap. It would be that their international business program has an enrollment cap. And they tell you that ahead of time. So you have to meet those requirements. And then they also assess things like your motivation letter, or maybe it'll be an interview. It's still not going to be what sports you played. They still don't care about that, you know. Um, but yeah, those those have a cap ahead of time. But what they're looking at when you have these extra requirements is to make sure your high school diploma is the equivalent of theirs. So that's, you know, you have to have when you're applying in Germany, a high school diploma that's the equivalent that the students in Germany get. And they're saying, well, guess what, U.S. students, unless you have an international baccalaureate diploma, your high school diploma is not the equivalent of ours unless you have a certain number of college credits. It used to be that they would take an SAT score, and now they don't. You have to have um, college credits. I think it's a year. Or, or you can do one of their foundation year programs, which costs about $20,000 a year. So, I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it, to, to go that route. So there are only about 300 programs out of the 1700 that require these sort of extras along with the high school diploma. So they are there, but they're not the majority. And so like, I know it's going to be hard, but how, how competitive is that and I, I, on an average, across, not across the 300 that have extra requirements, but the other 1400 programs that don't, if you were to say, like, if you were to look at an average high school student in the US, average SAT, average GPA, what have you, would that person be able to get into all of those programs, most of those programs, a third of those programs? Like, what are we looking at needing in order to to go abroad and to go to Europe and get into one of those regular programs? Yes, I was. If we're talking about like a B student, would you say? Yeah, Is that who we're talking? Yeah, about? B a student, B- right? Like regular, like someone who'd go to the university in in the states. They're proud. They're not going to go to an Ivy League university. They're not going to go to their worst state school university. They're going to go to a, yeah, I guess regular is a tough term, but yeah, B student. 
Yeah. So if we take out those 300 universities, so we're down to 1400, they, they would, you know, there are some that are even without those extra requirements that are super competitive, like the, where they'll just base it just on SAT or it's this hardcore interview process. Those are few and far between. So that student, if they applied on time, you know, and had a good motivation letter that speaks to why, why they want to go to that university, why they want to study outside their home country, um, then they would get into the majority of the programs. Okay. What about... Like just, people can't wrap their head around that. I tell them right, that. Right. They're like, should I apply to nine schools? I'm like, well, do you, you know, is there, do you have a top choice? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I really want to go to this school. I'm like, well, then apply and you're going to get in. What? <laughs> you know? So, so that is generally what you would say is apply to one or two schools. Yeah. I mean, it's rolling admissions also. So you apply. So my son's already gotten his conditional acceptance. Um, you know, so, so you apply and then you get your offer. And if you don't, for some reason, then you have plenty of time to apply to your next choice. Wow. That's a novel idea. That's a great little system, right? Like, Hey, instead of spending your time writing 10 essays to get into all these schools, nine of which you won't ever attend, then you just, yeah, you pick one, go for it. And if you don't get in and pick another, now, speaking of picking, though, picking a school is hard enough. I remember when I did it, I, I, I like didn't do any essays and then did like 15 because I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to go here, here, here. And then ended up not picking to go to any of them, go to community college for a semester. So I was a mess. Probably not. Right. You shouldn't follow my example. But picking a school is hard enough when you're just saying, hey, in the U.S., here are the ones that you know. Now we're adding like 350 schools on top of that across multitudes of countries. How, other than, I mean, you do have your best pick or your best fit list, which is great. What are some of the things that you would tell someone to look for? Like, how are they even going to narrow these choices down? Well, the first thing I tell them to look, well, one thing I do have, you know, I mentioned that I have courses for our members. And one course I have is about choosing a school and like really dives in, in depth to the considerations. But I think your first choice are the quantifiables. You know, the first thing to look at uh, the tuition you can pay and what you want to study. So you start there and then that's going to, you know, pare the list down significantly. And then through that, you, you make a list of what's important to you. And for some, it might be that the class size, you know, for some, it might be a certain region. For some, it might be um, that there are sports in the city that, that they play. You know, there, there are a number of whatever those considerations are, it's fine. I think I do think that people should look at the international student resources um, that the school offers. Uh, do they have uh, a university level office that's going to help you with some of those logistics? Do they have a program level international student coordinator who can help you as things go on um, and, and look to some of those? Do you recommend people take campus visits? I mean, obviously, it's better to do it than not. But is it something that you're like, hey, if you're going to do this and you have a number one school, I highly recommend you fly over and check it out first? Or, or is it like if you can go for it, but not necessary? Um, I would say nine times out of 10, it said if you can go for it, but it's not really necessary. You know, some of the more... Um, obscure places I might suggest that people go check out just to make sure it's a good fit for them um but you know one of the reasons people are looking in Europe is due to resources or limited resources and so it's not always possible to to take a trip over there I will say that it's not like here where there are tours that run every single day you can generally arrange it, and I help our members arrange visits but what they do have often are these things called experience days 
this is something my son and I did last fall at Leiden, where you go and they actually give you an assignment ahead of time and you sit with other prospective students and in an actual lecture and with the, the class discussion afterwards and parents have their own little you know presentation that we got as well. And my son, like many teenagers, thought that the assignment piece of it would be kind of stupid and boring and walked out of there just so enthusiastic and so excited about the learning approach and and the class discussion. And mind you, he was excited and telling me he was excited, even though it meant that he was wrong. You know, he was having to admit to me that he was wrong about his perception and still just couldn't even hide it. So it's it's a pretty awesome experience. All right. So if they can go for it, but certainly not necessary to take a campus visit if it's if if it's going to mean a lot of money laid out just to just to go and see a school. Totally. A lot of schools will have virtual tours on their websites. Uh, you can also find a lot of stuff out on YouTube. You know, there are a lot of resources. You, I even like this is kind of cheesy, but, you know, even to get a feel for a city, you can watch shows like, you know, International House Hunters, you know, just to get a feel for the vibe in certain cities. Yeah, definitely. What is the toughest part of the transition for most of the students that you see going over? Because obviously we know cost-wise it's great. We hit all like kind of the stuff. Your credits can transfer. You're going to get a good education, all this. But there still is the life part. And it's like I'm uprooting myself from where I am in the U.S. And I'm not even going to the next state over or to another coast. I'm going to a foreign country. And even, I mean, even for probably the most well-traveled 18-year-old, it's going to be a bit of a shock. So what have you seen like as, as issues or, or things that people should prepare themselves to say, like, this is going to happen and here's how to get past it when you, when you start to run into some of this stuff that's going to happen to you when you go abroad? Um, I think the academic expectations are a big thing that students have to adjust to. Uh, you're not going to be spoon fed, you know, either academically or, or with resources. The resources are there, but you have to seek them out. Uh, I know of one student since I've been doing Beyond the States who didn't make it past their first year. And that was because he didn't seek out the resources. I actually had dinner with him while he was still a student with him and some of his friends. And he was telling me about some of his struggles academically. And I said, boy, is, is there not like a group that can help you or a resource, an office? He said, nope, there sure isn't. And one of the students who was with us said, well, yeah, there is. We got an email about that at the beginning of the semester. You're not getting an email about that every single week, though. So you do have to seek this stuff out. Will they help? Like, will they put you with other international students? I mean, like, how does that work? I guess there's no no room and board uh, that option. But will they have certain things for other international students? Will they try to put you all together so that you, you know, you're going through it together? Well, one thing is that, you know, if you're in an English taught program, you're going to be with international students because, well, and also local students, but that's, they're, they're appealing to people outside of the home country. Um, the student residences, so there are student residences, but they're privately owned. They're not owned by the school. Sometimes schools have arrangements with them where they, you know, reserve a certain block for their students. And then yes, international students are generally put together mostly because um, local students if you know the area, you're going to start out with an apartment already. You know some friends there, and you'll rent an apartment already. So student residences is, are um, are highly international anyway. Okay, which makes it easier. What are the some of the cons that you would say? I mean, we talked a lot about the pros. Are there certain things, not not reasons enough that would make you not do it, but things that 
that are tougher, that are harder, that might make someone choose not to do it because they don't want to have to deal with the hassle? Yeah. Um, you're not going to get home as much. You know, there's no Thanksgiving break. Um, if you do have a spring break, you probably want to spend it, you know, tooling around Europe rather than coming home. You know, so, so you're, you're not going to get home as often. It's more expensive to get home. That would be the big one. The other thing is that there are, even though it's easier to get in, there are challenges between when you get that acceptance letter till the time you get to school that are headaches. You know, they're certainly surmountable, but they're headaches. Getting your student residence permit. We don't have to have visas. American students don't have to have visas to go there, but we do need the student residence permit. There are often just these bureaucratic nonsense rules around it. I have one school that I was working with and um, we did a series of, of college fairs and they um, we were signing some documents about it. And I had to resubmit the document three times because it wasn't signed in blue ink the first time. And then because when I scanned it, they couldn't tell that it was in blue ink. So those are the types of, of just stupid rules that you're going to have to deal with when you get your doc, you know, some countries require you to go to the secretary of state's office and get a certain certificate. Some require you to get documents translated. You know, yeah, there, there are headaches and you have to be on top, on top of it sort of from a time management perspective too. But all of those things are probably worth $45,000 per year. I would think like, for sure. yeah, when you're dealing with a headache, just remember like, Okay, if I'm paying myself by hour, I'm getting like three grand an hour, ten grand totally. an hour at this point. <laughs> oh well, I I just truly appreciate you coming on and chatting about that because it is for me again something I knew about. I, I knew about it as a notion, as an abstract idea, and knew that I wish I could have gone back and done it differently. And also knew that now having a child, like, all right, this is something I want to learn more about. So I'm super excited that you were able to come on and basically just answer every FAQ that I'm sure I had. Are there, is there any other questions that you could answer that I haven't asked? You're like, all right, here's a common one that people that people ask that, that we want to hit on. Because I, I feel like, I mean, I, I was definitely curious. No, I think we, we covered it. I guess the other thing I would say, sometimes people say, well, I, don't, I can't go to college in New York because I'm, you know, my son, you know, because I'm really into sports. Now, there are, are not collegiate sports like there are here, but there's still options for sports. You know, we have one member who is studying specifically someplace because he's playing on the soccer league in that country that leads to being a professional soccer player. You know, so, so there are options even outside of tailgating and collegiate football if you are into sports. We could we could tell that you're from down south. There you go. Good old football in in the uh, in the south, right? Um, down there in Asia. Hey, I'm from Chicago. I live in the south. All right, all right, all right. I'll give you a pass on that. One last question, uh, because we talked a lot about information for for traveling and and studying abroad and all that stuff. But I want to bring it back to your story a little bit. I want you to tell us big travel mishap that you've had doesn't have to be related to you visiting a school but if if it is that's totally fine um but what's something that you look back on you're just like yep this was maybe funny when it happened maybe not but in hindsight it makes a good story well i won't get into the food poisoning i had in france which was one of the worst experiences of my life but um more recently we went to barcelona for my husband's 50th birthday and I was making the arrangements and we usually, we have 
literally two nonstop flights to Europe from where we live, which is horrible. So, but anyway, we usually just fly direct to Paris and then fly wherever we're going, you know, from there on, on some cheaper airline. Um, so I bought his ticket from Paris to Barcelona separate from my own and didn't account for the fact that even though we were leaving Raleigh on, you know, whatever the 10th, we weren't getting to Paris until the 11th. So his plane ticket would need to be on the 11th and not the 10th. So um, he spent, so my ticket was fine though, because it was booked separately. So I got to Barcelona and we had to, he had to spend the day getting from um, Charles de Gaulle to Orly and then from Orly to Barcelona. And that is how he spent his 50th birthday. And I have to tell you, I'm happy I'm married to him because if I were married to myself and did that, I, I would never hear the end of it. <laughs> right. You'd be freaking out on yourself. And he's just like, totally. well, it's okay. It is interesting that your ticket was okay and his wasn't, you know? What? I don't know. You know, I guess if you want something done right, you should do it yourself. That's right. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jen. What else do you guys have coming up in the pipeline um, with Beyond the States? Like, is there new stuff you're rolling out? What should people be aware of? Well, um, in January, we have our last college fair. Um, which is a virtual event and it has eight of the 13 schools that were in the book that I wrote. Um, so that's our big thing right now. Other than that, it's just, you know, making sure we're keeping the database updated for our members and, and getting all the information out there to people. Awesome. And, and the site, I, I got to tell you why we're still on is laid out so well, like it's simple. It's easy. You can find the information you need. Like I, I went there and thought, I don't, yeah, like I don't have any questions. You know, sometimes you go on and there's so much information you don't know how to navigate. I'm just like, boop, 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 popping around. I'm like, I could learn everything I needed right here on this site. So it's it's well, well done. And I just want to thank you for joining me today and shining a light on on this fascinating topic. I think showing people that there aren't only other options, which we talked about in the beginning, but oftentimes there's, there's better or certainly way less expensive options. And for assaging that fear that comes with like, hey, this is out of the ordinary. I don't know anyone who's doing it. Is it safe? Is it okay? Am I going to get credits? Like all those questions people have when they when they don't have someone to rely on. You guys do an awesome, awesome job at that. So remind people one more time how they can come get a hold of you. Uh, just go to beyondthestates.com and you'll find everything you need to know there. Uh, you can find the answers to your questions or check the membership page to uh, to join us. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Jen. I can't, now I'm actually excited for my kid to grow up and go to school like you forever i'm nervous right like oh my gosh what am i gonna do i'm gonna have to start saving now now i'm excited it's great totally thank you thanks so much jen thank you everyone for tuning in today for your continued support that makes us number one rated travel podcast and until next time happy free travels i'll show you paris soon